0: Former Methodist bishop and rights campaigner, Reverend Professor Peter Storey, has brought out a deeply meaningful and beautifully written autobiography entitled, I Beg to Differ. In it, he covers his early years and personal life, his warm marriage and fatherhood, and the difficulties that arose out of being a priest who preached human rights from the pulpit at the peak of apartheid. Reverend Professor Peter Storey, thank you so much for coming in to speak to us.
1: Thank you, Joanne. It's lovely to be here.
0: Within the first three pages of the book, I have to say, you made me cry with a story of real hatred aimed at a little boy you were, we once were by, by other children. I mean, your realisation that day, your choice to open the book with it seems to indicate that it was somehow a defining moment in your life.
1: It was. It was the day of the election of the nationalist government in 1948. I was 10 years old. Um, an incident happened where I, I really received... A fair amount of the of the triumphalism and the hatred of of some young Afrikaans kids mm-hmm. who uh, who wanted to celebrate and I was getting off at a train station which normally only African people got off on you know this was the station for a Methodist mission educational institution where I lived and where my dad was the the head of that institution. And uh, it was a very painful experience, and I didn't know what it was about. Mm. And it was really, I suppose, my awakening to the fact that I lived in a divided land and that we were now entering a new chapter, my dad explained. And it was a chapter which was going to be marked by uh, discrimination, particularly against the people we lived amongst, the African people. And so I guess that was a political baptism mm. for me.
0: I mean it, it it would be it would be silly to ask where your your commitment to racial justice come from came from it's it's pretty evident in the opening chapter uh, given the context you grew up in.
1: Yes, my my, my family was one of long-standing Methodist involvement and I think I was the seventh in the line of, of, of Methodist ministers in my family since 1820. Um, and at its best, and we're not always at our best, mm-hmm. uh, Methodists uh, try to balance the importance of finding a personal engagement with God and a, a social a commitment to social justice and to God's purposes for a, a much wider society uh, I would hate uh, to to be branded as somebody with a faith that was all about getting myself to heaven, which really is a pretty boring subject for me. I think the the, the thing that Jesus wanted was to bring heaven to earth uh, wanted to build a community of people who would transform the world we live in and make it a, a, a gentler a kinder, a, a more humane, a more just place and um, so that's the tradition I grew up in. And I think I was very fortunate as a young white kid in South Africa to, to live in a community of black people. And so from a very early age to realize that, that the human family consisted of people other than pale faces mm. uh, who lived in privilege. And uh, so I'm grateful for my roots, very grateful. Um, and... Uh, and that experience, I suppose, painful as it was, at the railway station at Kuduspoort outside of Pretoria, um, I'm grateful for that experience too.
0: You know, you know, it's it's interesting. You reflect surprisingly early in the book on your English heritage, which uh, you you acknowledge must have its roots in colonization. How do you reconcile the brand of Christianity the missionaries brought with what's come to be your calling as a priest?
1: Well, you know, uh, uh, I try to acknowledge the the ills of colonialism, which you know accompanied the eighteen twenty settlers, who were my ancestors, um, and uh, I recognise all of that. And yet, at the same time, uh, the the faith that came along, if you like, under the shadow of colonialism, the Christian faith through missionaries, mm-hmm. um, had within it whether they knew it or not, the seeds of the destruction of colonialism. You know Desmond Tutu always used to say, you know, when the settlers came, we had the land, they had the Bible, then they told us to pray, and we closed our eyes, and when we opened our eyes, you know, they had the land and we had the Bible. But then he went on to say always, and we intend to take this book very seriously, and it's a revolutionary book, and it will bring us our freedom. So there's a sense in which, um, contradictory as it may sound, Um, A colonial system gave space for the planting of a faith which ultimately brought about the end of that colonialism.
0: Many of the early battles you fought seem to have centered on your identity as an English speaker among Afrikaners, particularly in the school situation. How difficult was that for you?
1: Well, I think that that was the first sort of... um, gulf which i experienced Mm -hmm. as a school kid and so on um and and we were strangers to one another Uh, if there was ultimately a massive apartheid between white and black there was another apartheid between english and afrikaans speaking kids Mm -hmm. and i grew i grew up with the arrogance of uh, the south african english I grew up with um, uh, the practice, if you like, of looking down on Afrikaners. They were strangers to us. Their culture was different than us. And there was this subtle assumption amongst English speakers that we were more superior. So Mm -hmm. that's an issue I've had to deal with. And never mind any issue across color lines, that's also an issue which uh, I have to repent uh, because I think if the English speakers... In our country, had been able to rise above um, their own pride mm-hmm. after the South African War and r- r- rise up and apologise for what they did to Afrikaners in that war. Maybe our history would have been different, and the bitterness which which those actions engendered amongst Afrikaners might not have been the same.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I enjoy how plainly you write about the choice to believe in God or not. Why do you choose to believe?
1: Because it makes more sense to me than not believing. And oh, I'm so. quite ready to admit that it, the opposite may be true for many people. But, uh, you know, when some people say, uh, How can you believe in God in a world where there is so much chaos and hatred and violence and hurt and brokenness? Uh, it doesn't make sense. My response would be the only thing that does make sense is that there is a god um, who who is who who's involved in a long love affair with this very rebellious and broken world uh, and i 'd like to be on the side of of a God who is seeking to bring something more humane and 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 good out of our world um Belief in God gives me a framework within which I can, I can build a set of values and virtues and, and which hold me accountable. Mm-hmm. And I need that. Maybe other people don't, but I do. I need to be held accountable for the way I live my life each day. And I want to be accountable to, to somebody who I believe has a profound and, and deep love for this world, and that's what uh, the story of the Bible tells me ultimately. It's a love story, it's a love story between a, a heartbroken God and uh, a very perverse humanity. Uh, and for me, the story of Jesus and the story of the cross and so on is all about revealing the kind of heart God has. Um, it's a heart which is willing to suffer. Uh, rather than punish. Uh, and and that's, that's the kind of God who moves me to want to live for something better. I've never been impressed with the sort of uh, magistrate in the sky or the heavenly policeman yes. who comes and beats you around the head if you do wrong. I've been far more profoundly moved over, over my lifetime by a god who loves me so much that he's willing to to take pain on my behalf and to hurt not only with me but for me.
0: You, you know the book is difficult to encapsulate in a conversation like this simply because it is so dense and so uh, one is forced to to pull out some of the the, the most uh, most salient moments in that book perhaps and and therefore in in your life. Um, one of them being this this process that you went through in 1962 where you followed in the footsteps of several other Methodist ministers going to Robben Island. What were your interactions like with men like Robert Sobukwe, Nelson Mandela, Govan Mbeki and others like on the island?
1: Well, actually, I was the very first Methodist chaplain to the island. That was ah. 1963 when yes. the prison was being built. And my first encounter was with, with Robert Sobukwe. And fortunately, because he was a Methodist lay preacher, I had access to him and had an hour with him each time I went to the island. And and so we we were able to to go fairly deep together, even though there was always a prison warder standing alongside us, ensuring that we didn't uh, cross the line into political discussion. Nevertheless, we had a theological language which we could share and perhaps it was a little bit of a code as well. Mm. But the most important thing, I don't know what impression I left on, on, on Robert's Robertson bookweb but the impression he left on me was was enormous. Um, I was a very young minister, quite far too inexperienced to be given this job. And this man was a giant. And to to see him living alone in solitary confinement and yet retaining... His dignity getting up each morning and putting on a jacket and tie, mm-hmm. refusing to be debased yes. by the circumstances and the people around him, and some of them were very crude people and even the even the the the, the, the uh, staff sergeant who used to drive me to robert 's hut uh, had a grudging admiration for him. He said, you know, sometimes we put a young policeman to patrol around this little compound of his, and these policemen get bored and they start throwing insults at him and trying to bait him. He never rises to the bait, Mm -hmm. ever. And he says, this is a man. Um, And uh, Robert left a, a, a very deep mark on me, and I'm very grateful and then came the Ravonia trialists yes. in the middle of 64. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was only able to minister to them in the last six months of 64 because my security clearance was taken away from me and mm-hmm. I, I was kicked off the island. And ministry to them was very limited because they were under uh, a very uh, strict uh, uh, security and uh, they were not allowed out of their cells When I uh, conducted a service, I had to walk up and down the passage between their cells. I had to look into each cell and try and engage each person individually with my eyes Mm -hmm. as I spoke, and I guess I I developed a kind of soundbite preaching, trying to leave each person with some hope, uh, some some human touch, Uh, even though... I only got them out into the courtyard once for a service of worship in, in the sunshine, a yes. you know, cold winter's day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was struck by just the caliber of these people, their bearing, the way they related to each other, the way they related to me gracefully, um, uh, without fear, uh, on a completely equal basis. And, uh, and I, I came away from the island, my, my primary impression uh, having spent that uh, two years or so on the island w- was how on earth can anyone see any sense in locking up people of this caliber mm. given the kind of contribution they could make to our country? even as it's beginning to slip down into uh, um, into deep, deep oppression.
0: You you were there to, to witness uh, a great deal of that slippage and the trauma that came with it. Later you'd served in, in District 6 as a parish priest. What was it like when the bulldozers came?
1: It was very, very painful. These were people I had grown to love, and these were people who had given me... The most amazing gift. You know, when I arrived there as their minister, it was in uh, within a month or so of the declaration of District 6 as a white group area. Mm-hmm. And so here I stood in the pulpit looking out at a congregation of 800 people, every one of whom was likely to lose their home because of people my color. So the challenge of <clears throat> somehow finding a way through to them I found to be uh, enormously um, difficult. Yes. But they were the ones who opened their hearts to me. I didn't have to break through to them. They broke through to me. And uh, I think my ministry in that community was one of the happiest in my life. And I learned so many things from people who lived in poverty and on the edge every day. And... Uh, And then watching their homes uh, being bulldozed, participating in the the sort of ritual of a family now leaving District 6 forever, and the the prayers that were held in that home, but the home was now bare, Mm -hmm. nothing left. The home that you'd visited a number of occasions, and which had been such a warm place, was now bare, and the old oldest lino still lying on the floor perhaps and a few boxes lying around and and somebody asking why Why are they doing this to us mm. and then seeing the family move out into a car and the men of the family getting onto a truck with the possessions on it and then this little sad procession going down the street with neighbours waving yes. and crying very painful, and then discovering that there was a resilience amongst these people that was not going to allow this to destroy their lives. It was all uh, an amazing, humbling lesson to be part of that community.
0: I suppose it was also really in Johannesburg that you came into your own as an activist priest based at the Central Methodist Church. What do you recall of the 1976 Soweto uprising.
1: Well, that was a that was a strange day because uh, I was at my church that morning of June 16. Uh, we had certainly been involved in the tensions in Soweto and in the uh, in the sharing of of, of the, the 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 delivering of warnings to the the apartheid cabinet mm. that they they were playing with fire mm. um, and you remember desmond tutu uh, had had sent a letter to the, the prime minister warning him of the explosion that could well happen but when it happened there was this sort of eerie calm in the city uh, i looked out from the third floor of my office and and saw people in, in clumps talking to each other uh, down in, in the street. And then the news began to come through. And I immediately went to the South African Council of Churches headquarters because by that time I was an officer of the SACC. Yes. And, uh, um, uh, and we tried to contact the prime minister. And we did. And we had a telephone conversation with a man who was living on another planet uh, John Forster was the prime minister yes. he immediately launched into attack and said your kind of people have produced this kind of violence it's your fault and we pleaded with him to 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 stop the uh, the rioting of his own police force in Soweto who by that time were chasing all and sundry and shooting at them and he refused and with with a sort of absurdity he said we we had done this. His enemies had done this in order to scupper his meeting with Dr. Kissinger in Switzerland the next week. And I thought to myself, oh, God, why is it that politicians can think only of themselves and, you know, their their interests all the time? And here are people dying. And on that day, my friend John Reese, who at that time uh, was still deeply involved in Um, in the Council of Churches and in other, he he was very, very familiar with Soweto. And the authorities that day had stopped the trains running as soon as the violence uh, emerged in Orlando. And John realized that if those trains did not run, and if parents who worked in the city, desperate to know what was happening to their children, were not able to get back, then we would see far, far more violence. And he virtually single-handedly browbeat various railways, authorities and so on to get those trains running again and probably saved a lot of lives that day. Mm-hmm. Desmond Tutu came into the office. He had just arrived recently from England, was now the dean of the cathedral, the first black dean. Yes. And he was in tears. He says, they're shooting our children. How can they do that? How
0: can they shoot
1: our children? And so it was, it was a rough day.
0: W- what a memory. What, what about the accusations made against you? And, and there were several at that time because you were preaching so boldly from the, the pulpit against this kind of thing all the time. That you were an activist and not a priest.
1: Oh, well, um, <laughs> uh, what, what use is an inactive priest? I mean, for goodness sake. Um, what would you call Jesus? You know, a man who, ultimately, uh, alone, uh, unarmed, uh, confronted the the powers in Jerusalem, both the religious and the political powers, uh, with the challenge to the way. To the way they oppressed, either through religion or through uh, political power. Um, what would What would people say of him? I guess he was an activist. Um, But more than that, you know, there's a kind of false dichotomy here. Um, Why is it that some people think that God is only... Why do they want to domesticate God and, and make God a little mascot for their own personal spiritual needs when God is the creator of the universe... And God cares about a whole world. And why do we think we can limit God's compassion to individuals and not see God's concern for the transformation of systems as well? Why is it that we think it's okay to give a few rand to somebody who is poor, but we don't see the systemic causes of widespread poverty and how those those systems are in fact buttressed by the injustices of a ruling class. Why is it that we don't see that? And so it seems to me that um, one of the things that's precious to me in my sort of Methodist tradition yes. is that uh, it seems to me there has always been an attempt to balance both – personal uh, spirituality and social responsibility, Um, personal holiness, if you like, and social justice, and that the two have to be held in balance uh, rather than focus on one to the detriment of the other. Uh, it's, It's what I call the heresy of the half gospel. Some people get all hung up on on their own personal spirituality, and perhaps others get all hung up on social justice. The people who who just focus on their own souls are escapists. The people who 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 just focus on social justice without looking to their own inner moral strengthening are going to be are going to be disappointed they're going to be disillusioned somehow we've got to we've got to bring the resources of both personal transformation and social justice together and hold them together.
0: I must ask you about an event that happened in the 80s, if we're to fast forward there. I mean, we're reminded of the Stompy Sepie story, which implicated Winnie Madikizela Mandela. You'd known her well, but you'd also appointed Paul Varane as the only white Methodist priest in Soweto. What do you believe happened there?
1: I don't think we will <coughs> pardon me, ever know for sure. Uh, I know what happened, certainly I know what happened. I kept a blow-by-blow record of what happened over that period and I've tried to detail it in the book. But why it happened, I don't think we'll ever know. Um, there are various theories um, and, and certainly it would seem to me that this amazing person, who I admired and looked up to uh, and regarded as um, a, an example of such courage and, um, and defiance uh, against an evil system and who had suffered so much at the hands of that system. Nevertheless, uh, I think had become deeply wounded herself, as often happens. Mm-hmm. Um, the exact reasons why she instigated what was essentially the kidnap of five young men from a Methodist minister's home. I don't know. I've got my own theories. Uh, Other people have got theirs. Um, She might have genuinely believed that that sexual abuse was happening in that home. Um, If so, There is nothing logical at all about rescuing young men in order to beat them to a pulp. So I don't buy that one, frankly. Uh, It may be that there was some measure of competition between the kind of sanctuary she was giving in her home to activists and the work that Varane was doing with young men who were trying to escape the security branch and so on. Mm. It may be, as I have heard, that... She asked him to give shelter to an armed MK um, Cader and he, in principle, refused to take anybody who was carrying weapons. I don't know. Uh, It may be that simply she didn't like any other centre of influence uh, threatening, you know, her her power in, in that area. I don't know. Uh, what I do know is that it ended up in a 14-year-old being murdered and uh, at least four others being very, very badly beaten. And it ended up in a hostage situation in which I found myself at one, on one side and Winnie on the other and working with the community trying to help her, in a sense, out, I think, of the dilemma which she'd created for herself. Mm. And it was a kind of dead end and a cul-de-sac. And there came a time when genuinely those of us who were trying to engage with her about those kidnapped kids or young men um, were not sure whether whether putting too much pressure on her might end their lives as well mm. uh, or whether, you know, how, how to go about it. Um, so it was a very painful time for those of us engaged. Uh, in the end, those young men were released into my care, yes. two of them. Um, one of them had already escaped. One of them, I think, was a pretty doubtful character. We were not sure what side he was on at, at any point, yes. a very disturbed young man. And then, of course, there was a missing child. And as the drama sort of continued, on the one hand, there were all sorts of accusations about um, people trying to destroy her and telling lies about her and so on. And those accusations became more and more bizarre and irrational each time she gave a, a television interview. On the other hand, there was a committee, which I was working with, who had been tasked with uh, trying to negotiate the release and to control an out-of-control situation, her football team. And then there was me. And there came a point where, frankly, I felt that that committee was far more concerned with saving the image of the liberation struggle uh, which, okay, might have been their priority. But I know what my priority was. My, my priority was a little 14-year-old boy who who was now dead. And, um, and it seemed to me very important to keep his face before me and not to forget who the real victim of all of this was. Uh, it was that child. Um, so it was a painful time. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it... It it put an enormous blot on the on the reputation of a remarkable person, um, and I guess people will continue to to argue. Uh, I will continue to see the face of Stumpy, who I got to know once, and um, and I'll continue to believe that that it. It's the duty of South Africans to remember the stompies of this world, not just the icons of the struggle, but the, the, the little people who suffered. And it's also important for us to realize again that when you get involved in violence, uh, that violence does things not just to your enemy, it does things to you. And after a while, you begin to behave a little bit like your enemy. And that's the lesson we should learn. From the uh, the stompy pie drama, I think,
0: there are so many facets to your story. There's the uh, historical element. Uh, there is your your personal, private uh, religious uh, journey, which is which is contained in this book. Uh, but there is one thread that runs throughout it, and and it is it is certainly on the side of the of the more personal. You you pay tribute so beautifully to your wife Elizabeth, whom you describe as the love of your life for sixty two years, and given the path you chose, I can't imagine that it was easy for her raising your boys and being a social justice campaigner in her own right.
1: Oh, she was, um, I, 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 I like to, to to put her forward because she had her own witness. She had her own. A deep, deep and passionate commitment to justice. It wasn't such a public one. I think she enjoyed most giving support and strength which set free others to, to do what they – she was Desmond Tutu's PA for yes. five years. And I think it, it gave her enormous joy to be able to clear the way so that he could be who he was meant to be, mm. without being burdened by the kind of things which she could lift from his shoulders, she did the same for Charles Newpin at the mediation centre of South Africa, training where they were training people like Cyril Ramaphosa to learn how to negotiate, mm. um, and, and but most of all, I remember a, a person who who had a. An unshakable, deeply serene uh, faith in what was right, and a, an uncanny ability to to help others see what was right and also what was wrong, and to mm-hmm. do so in a very gentle, caring way. She used to correct me when I was going wrong <laughs> in, in, in a way which I couldn't really resist. <laughs> she used to ask. Very kind questions. She never berated me. She simply said, do you think? What if? And I would reconsider and I would move in a new direction. And she had a wonderful way of dealing with individuals. She was a one-to-one person. And when she died, the almost shock to me, because she didn't talk about these people because what she talked about with them was usually very confidential. It was about deep things in their lives yeah. uh, and perhaps brokenness in their lives and so on. And the, the the emails that came in from all over the world from individuals who had maybe spent a couple of hours with her and gone away from that encounter strengthened, different, perhaps more at peace, uh, perhaps uh, having feeling that they could now cope with what they were doing so when we went around the country and i was the big shot talking at all these great gatherings and things what was happening on the side yes. was that she was she was engaging with people on a one to one basis she was making friendships which she would carry to her grave and which would be transforming friendships and for that i give i give thanks
0: you you speak of the magnetism the sea holds for you and also your short-lived <laughs> Navy career. And it interests me because this is a side we don't often see of the people who've been at the forefront of the struggle. We don't imagine that you have a private life where you, you can enjoy some private pleasures at times. What is it that draws you to water, to the ocean?
1: It's hard to say. I know that when I was a, a small kid... I went to Victoria Lake in Germiston and I got on a boat and I knew I was home. I was happy. There was a, just a joy in me and I've loved being on boats ever since. But the the sense of being at sea and being somehow suspended between heaven and earth on this amazing, heaving, moving, living thing called the ocean is incredibly exciting to me. <laughs> and, uh, and and the fact that that. Adventure invites us to engage with the ocean to take it on, and yet to respect it deeply because don't mess with the ocean it's going to win <laughs> and and so you've got to somehow harmonize your life with the wind and the sea and 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 become part of it in a way but i've I can only say that when i'm on the water i'm at peace, and I exult and I find something. I don't think I've been very good at in my life. Joy.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting thing indeed. Why, why do you feel? Why do you feel you've, you've not been good at it or perhaps you've, you've missed it in some regards?
1: You know, I don't know whether we realize, any of us, how wounded all of us South Africans are. We've lived in the middle of a disease, We've lived with a pathology all our lives. Maybe we weren't conscious about it, but the, the kind of grey cloud of of living in a land where we never we never we never acknowledge the humanness of one another is a corroding, a corrosive thing. And so, I think we're all pretty wounded. Um, we we're all. Uh, Joy doesn't come easily. Real pure joy doesn't come easily. Sometimes it's forced. Mm. Sometimes we use it to to escape. But if you compare the way we lived up till 94 with those amazing days during that short short brief beautiful uh, magic moment of 94 to perhaps 98, 99, somewhere around there, when we were discovering what it was like to be real human beings, mm. when we discovering that it was quite nice to be good rather than bad, yes. that it was, it was a beautiful thing to begin to see the humanness in each other, those were days we shouldn't forget. Because in that brief, bright moment, we were given a, a glimpse of of what I believe is God's uh, longing for all humankind. And we, we lost it. We screwed up. We went down a very bad road, which we hopefully are going to begin to climb out of now. But I like to say to my fellow South Africans, you know, let's not get, you know, exaggerated ideas of our importance as a country. We're a tiny little country at the bottom of Africa with not much to offer. Except one thing, for a brief bright moment we showed the world that people who had hated one another could forgive and reconcile. For a brief bright moment we showed the world that people of different cultures and colours could actually work together for something bigger than themselves or their sectional um, nationalisms. For a brief, bright moment, we, we showed the world a way to, to peace and joy and justice. Um, that's what we have to give the world. That's the only thing that South Africa has to give the world. That's our unique gift to the world. And we let it go. We should find it again.
0: Wonderful speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time this evening, uh, Reverend, P- <laughs> Reverend Professor Peter Story. <laughs>